Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode. To have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode. Additionally, there will be an email capture in the show notes specifically for people who want to help and learn more about this Kickstarter I'm running next month. It is related to bees, so if you've ever asked yourself, how am I helping out the bees, considering they lost 40% in the U.S. alone last winter, then sign up for the newsletter and you'll get weekly updates about the developing problems in beekeeping and bees specifically and bee researchers as well. So I'll leave that there. Check it out. Uh, it's going to be amazing. You guys are, for long-time listeners and fans who have been messaging me on ways you can be supportive, this is a big way. So even if you just send that email capture to your, your Twitter, being like, hey, this guy's working on something, that'd be really helpful. If you want to sign up yourself, that's amazing as well. Remember, show notes, check it out, and it will be labeled as well. Today we're joined with Christina Thompson, unrelated to me. She is the author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. And Come On Shore and We Will Kill and Eat You All. So two really interesting books. Pa, uh, the Come On Shore just came out this year, so you're probably going to want to pick that up. She's gotten multiple awards and uh, prizes for her writing because she's fantastic at it. She's an editor for the Harvard Review. You name it, this person's done it. She is a dual citizen of the U.S. and Australia, which is pretty cool. And we actually get into her uh, life story a bit in the discussion. We center very much on Polynesia, but... Uh, as well as uh, some interesting aspects that you only can get from having a, a life like hers. And at the end, we have the usual, you know, what problems have you had, what do you need help with, and what are some great books. And we, we get some book recommendations here, so stick in, kick your feet back, listen to Christina Thompson, who is not related to me, though it would be cool if she was, and let's enjoy this interview. Also, this is part one of two. I'm trying 30-minute, roughly incremented episodes to see what you guys think of that it's just an experiment trying things new let me know what you think if you hate having different parts you can let me know i'm always open to feedback when people read your books what is the what are some of the takeaways that you want them to have like when you're crafting them when you're writing them um were there certain stories that you wanted them to be thinking about moving forward or, or anything like that like i know when i read a book that uh, like i just finished reading a book a rereading a book on uh, Benjamin Franklin by Walter Isaacson. And so I, I really enjoyed like a couple of the stories in there that I'm, I'm like almost always going to use moving forward. But I'm curious, what are some of the things that you wanted people to take away from your books? Well, so one of the stories in this particular book is the story of the Hokulea, which is a uh, Hawaiian voyaging canoe that was built in the 1970s, early 1970s. And it it's been sailing ever since, and it's made a lot of really spectacular voyages, all with non-instrumental um, navigation, uh, people navigating, you know, using the stars and the sea and and what they understand about their environment and not using compasses and sextants and GPS and stuff like that. So that's at the end of the book. Um, it's a section of the book, which is about what can be learned from that kind of experimentation. But it's a really important or really interesting, fascinating chapter in American history, in Hawaiian history. Um, and I think it's not so well known, especially to people, you know, like maybe on the East Coast or in the middle of the country or, you know, might be a little bit more familiar on the West Coast. But, but so I love that's a story that I think we should all, under, we should all know. Um, it's, it's about the origins of the Hawaiians and the amazing accomplishments of the Polynesian people. So that's kind of an interesting story. Mm-hmm. I think the the people that did the Hawaii trip or from the Hawaii in the 1970s did, I think a, a world, a world one in like uh, 2014 where they actually traveled across the entire world using Polynesian navigation um, 
They did. Yeah. They did. Yeah. yeah, they did. They did. Absolutely. And in fact, that's the same canoe. I mean, we call it a canoe. It's really a catamaran. Um, it's a double hulled voyaging canoe, but they, it's the same vessel that they built in the 1970s that they took on this, what they call the Malamahonua voyage, which is when they went around the world with it. It came to Boston. I saw it in Boston, actually, which was really exciting. But and there's a great photograph of it in passing in front of the Statue of Liberty. But they went everywhere, which was really an amazing, amazing journey. Yeah. Do, do you think that that, I don't know, like, um, created any sense of like a, a resurgent of, of that type of um, way of traveling like people i know in your book that that when um when people when the europeans came to the area they kind of like um i don't know the right word like fenced off like the ocean so people couldn't travel that much and so like that those type of um ways of living kind of went down and so i'm wondering if if like them showing the catamaran and like showing like uh, how people can still use it today if that has at all like allowed the Polynesian people to start using the techniques again or like desire to like teach your kids again or is it just like one of those things that's like only things to be appreciated not to be like currently used to, like travel around no they, they definitely have these large navigational schools now and they're teaching kids in lots of islands not just in Hawaii also in the in New Zealand and the Cook Islands and a lot of places French Polynesia but so yeah, there's, I, I mean, it's not like people are going to start traveling. If say they have to go to Tahiti, they're not necessarily going to go that way because <laughs> it's hard and it takes real like super special knowledge plus also years and years and years of experience and everything. But I think the real impact of it is on, um, it's, it's basically kind of a cultural pride story. It's a story about um, people understanding their own heritage and also being able to share that with other people. So I think Polynesians, especially in the 1970s when they started this movement, um, you know, that was connected with a, it was almost like a civil rights movement. It was part of the civil rights movement in a sense. It was sort of an indigenous um, civil rights movement around the world. But there was a sense that, oh, look, this is an amazing history. We deep, it's been a long time since they had been traveling that way. And yes, under the impact of colonialism, they had lost a lot of prestige and a lot of self-confidence and a lot of resources and a lot of autonomy. So bringing back the, the, the kind of vision almost of, of, of what had been done in the past, I think was really inspiring. And I think it's continued to be super inspiring. And that has been one of the messages of the, of the people, the Polynesian Voyaging Society, which supported all this, this um, activity. Mm -hmm. no I, i'm definitely a huge uh, supporter of this type of stuff because it's like it we can't only have like the western point of view or uh, or like you lose like like humans have existed for you know thousands and thousands of years and if we only look at it from like one lens when there's been so many different ways of perceiving the world and going about it then it's it's like it's, it's like, sort of boring yeah, it's, boring. <laughs> it's like so many people struggle to you know, i mean like imagine like the first couple of people that figured out how to like I think it's called wayfinding where they go like they figure out how to navigate and yeah. go and find another island. Like that's a hard thing to do. And for that just to be lost, like in the United States, I, I know that the, the name American, a lot of the cultures are being lost because uh, they're more mainly oral traditions, but there are some organizations working to actually go out and record like the, the oral stories so people can preserve them, which is just fantastic. So I think stuff like this, where like one aspect of their culture that can be like blown up so people can say, Hey, wow, this is special and it needs to be, you know, preserved and, and, and thought around because like it can improve all of our lives. Like, and I think, I think sometimes people just don't realize like everything interacts with everything else. And so if you like allow like an over homogenization of things that like, it, it's not all, it's not a good thing. Like you need diversity. Like, uh, I mean, if any, anyone's ever seen the movie interstellar where, um, mm. Um, well, there's like that blight that's like wiping out crops that's mm. pre predominantly due to like monocultures where there's only one crop in an area. And so if you think of like different, pers uh, different perspectives, like if the West was only like one crop, like you're not really going to get the most diver divergent, interesting ideas just from like that one, you know, way of thinking. Um, yeah, we certainly have, you know, I mean, w one of the things that has happened uh, as we've become more globalized and um, in the last few hundred years is, is, is certainly the loss of different points of view. And also it's quite specific in some cases, it's like the loss of certain, of many, many languages. So small groups of people who have had a particular language and encoded in that language, particular worldview. And, you know, it's all interesting, but it does disappear. And it, once, it, once it disappears, if it's oral, um, you know, if there isn't any record of it, there, there isn't any way to recover it. So it's a lot like, you know, species loss. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it, there will be new versions of things coming along too, but 
it is sad to me anyway when we lose languages and when we lose cultural perspectives. So I'm happy to see this stuff being uh, kind of rejuvenated. Mm-hmm. I think the when I was in college, at least the the, the like in a, a number of years, I think we we're going to be down to only like 50 languages spoken or something like that. Like where we used to have thousands and thousands, and it's no, getting. I don't think it'll be that few that fast, but it is. Okay. We are losing them very fast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, um. Well, in terms of the the navigation, do you have you experimented with that or, or know how to do it, or is this something no. that? Okay. No, 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 no. I don't have any firsthand. I mean, I have talked to people who know how to do it, but I don't. I don't have any, and it's something that takes a long time to learn. It's mm-hmm. it's not. I'm not a. I'm not a practice. I'm not a person who puts this into practice. I'm like a book person. <laughs> Makes sense. If if you had to like pick one aspect of Polynesian culture that you wanted to, I don't know, like experiment with or, or try and uh like use on a daily basis i imagine like you know using um their wayfinding to go from point a to point b probably wouldn't be the most effective thing to do but is there anything that you would incorporate into your life well i'm you know i'm just generally interested in um i I don't really think of it quite that way but i'm very interested in polynesian languages I'm very interested in the stories and the mythology. I mean, it's not something I put into practice in the sense that I don't, you know, I don't know how you would even, I mean, I don't speak the languages exactly and I don't, but I like to read about them and I like to think about them because, you know, there are all these stories from the past, the, and and, and it's quite a big, you know, Polynesian, mythology and Polynesian oral traditions were in fact pretty well documented in the 19th century, better than say a lot of Native American traditions. You know, there was just pretty good documentation in some areas, not everywhere, but in in Hawaii and in New Zealand, for example, and to some extent in Tahiti. And so there's this kind of interesting corpus of, of, of material that was, that goes back to pretty close to the point of contact between Polynesians and outsiders. And I think that gives you like this really interesting insight back into, you know, how people thought and what they, how they looked at the world and what they believed and what they thought they ought to do and stuff like that. And that's the kind of thing that really interests me. Yeah, definitely. The, I think there's a, a thing with Shakespeare where um, when people read the books, it's not the same as watching or listening to it. Cause that's, it's, they're meant to be performances. And so are there, are there stories that if, if you could, you'd wish that you could see them be like orally spoken about? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, all this, that's a really, it's a, that's touches on a really interesting and important point, which is that these things that I'm talking about that were documented in the 19th century are in fact just slices. They're like one momentary slice of what it was a, a kind of a, almost like a, you know, cross section of a, of a tradition where you've got one version of these stories, which were being told by all different people in slightly different ways in all different kind of neighborhoods by, you know, and, and so you had this like complex living cultural tradition, which was all oral and, um, and, and, and a little tiny bit of it got recorded. And so in a way, what I'm trying to do when I look at that part is to sort of think back about how, what it might've been like when it was really fully alive and, you know, everybody's life, it, you know, when it was the, the core of everybody's, the, all these people's lives. It, it, it's not like the way we are now. It is different. Um, but I don't know exactly how it was different. I, I think about that a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> kind of an esoteric subject, but, but, but it, 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 you know, I mean, it, it's something that I, I thought about writing it about it some more and I'm, I'm struggling with how to think about how to, how to make it really apparent to someone who's never really thought about that before, because most people don't really ever think about the idea of what would it be like to live in a world without writing, without any kind of writing you know, it, it would be quite different. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. It's kind of like describing the color blue to someone who hasn't seen it. I, I it's hard. Think, yeah. I think there are some, some really big, I think cultures actually are very different from one another sometimes and that they have been over time quite different. I mean, I think, you know, I believe in these kind of deep cross, you know, sort of deep human qualities. I, I, I think all people are, people and they're equally valuable and they're, you know, all interesting to me, but I do think the cultures are kind of different and people's value systems are different and people's expectations are different. And, uh, and, and that always has interested me a lot. So, so a lot of my work, you know, in fact, has been, even my earlier book has been kind of, it, it, it's sort of this, these efforts to, to look at, 
at how cultures are different from one another and what happens when they come into contact with each other. How do they sort of navigate that, that, that moment of contact with one another when they don't really know what, um, what the other people are thinking? Seems mm-hmm. like an interesting moment to me. Yeah, the, I was uh, in my research for uh, talking with you. The there was a New York Times piece, and it was kind of talking about the uh, a number of things. But it, um, I'm supposed to like reference what I, I pull up on. Like <laughs> listeners have given me feedback that I can't just like say something that you'd understand, but no one else would. And uh, <laughs> but uh, ba- basically, they talk about how when uh, J- James Cook was traveling around in the Poly- Polynesian area, he was able to get this guide who was a priest. And they went to, I think they landed off the North shore of New Zealand and like a bunch of Maori, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, came like, were like, Hey, what are you guys up to? But like, you know, they don't speak the same language, but then the, the guy that the, the guy that Captain Cook was able to have joined the crew, um, stepped out and spoke a language that they understood. And even though they were separated by, I think it was like 1300 miles, they were still able to communicate. And right. same language, which is just crazy. Like, um, if right, right, right. So, th- so that's like a that's an important story in my book. It's the it's the story of this guy named Tupaya, who is a Tahitian. He's actually from an island called Daraiatea, which is in the Leeward Islands um, near Bora Bora. Uh, and he did, in fact, sail away from there with Captain Cook out on Captain Cook's first voyage. And they did travel after that for a couple of months, and then end up in New Zealand. And it is that is the story, which is that Tupaya. Cook had trouble making himself understood, and then Tupaya stepped forward, and the Maori did, in fact, understand him when he was speaking Tahitian. And that was a big surprise to everybody because it's more than 1,300, it's a couple of thousand miles. And um, there was no expectation uh, that, uh, I mean, actually, I don't know exactly how many miles it is now that I think about it, but they had been sea for two months because they were wandering back and forth. <clears throat> and nobody really expected this uh, this this land that they arrived at, New Zealand, which is very different from the islands they'd come from. You know, it was continental. It was very big. It was much colder. All of these things. They didn't have any reason to think that the people who were living there would have any connection with the people who were in Tahiti. And that was sort of the first moment at which it started to become clear to the Europeans who had arrived in the Pacific that, in fact, these Polynesian people were oh, you know, they were like one people, but they were really widely dispersed. They were occupying, and and it wasn't clear for for another, you know, six or seven years, just how fully dispersed, how widely dispersed they were. Because, you know, Cook didn't get to Hawaii until another, almost nine years later or something. And, uh, and that was when it finally get the whole picture of how big the Polynesian Triangle really is. It's really, really big geographically. And so these people are spread over this really, really big area. And, and, and that was an astonishing fact when people finally got the whole, you know, when Europeans got their heads around it. Mm-hmm. The, and for people listening to give you a sense of like the scale, a couple thousand miles is the difference between like Paris and Moscow and just think of how many different languages and cultures are fit in between there. Or if you're in America, like from like, the East coast, the West coast, like it's, it's a big spot. Like there's a lot of, you know, peoples and yet somehow they were all speaking the same language. Like well, it, one of the, yeah, one of the things that I, one of the ways I tried to translate that was that it, it, it was that if you take the Polynesian triangle, which is the top point at Hawaii and the bottom point, two points at New Zealand and Easter Island is that you, is the, the flying time between any two points is nine hours. So like you fly for nine hours in an airplane <laughs> and you get from the top of the Polynesian triangle to the, you know, southwest corner and then they'll fly nine hours to the southeast corner i mean it's a lot of flying time you know it's really the distances are enormous it's 10 million square miles so anyway yeah i think it's crazy how they were able to find islands like i know they they apparently like they looked out for clouds they looked out for birds they looked out for a number of things but like i guess like anything that's different when you're out on the ocean the ocean kind of freaks me out because it's just like on the average it's like two miles deep but (laughs) but like you know, I imagine people who may, it's like their home, like it doesn't, it, I would, I'm sure it is not scary to them. But. I, I think it was scary when it was, you know, I mean, I think it was appropriately scary in some times because the ocean is dangerous. You know, the, the ocean is dangerous if you don't understand it, but it can be dangerous even to people who do understand it. If you, if a storm comes up, when you're not expecting it, or I was just reading something the other day, it was talking, somebody was talking about how, um, 
trying to figure out how many canoes might have been lost, you know, in this in this expansion. Nobody knows the answer to that question, but thinking about it. And then they, he was reporting a lot of ethnographic information from the 20th century where people would talk about how, like, if they thought that the weather was, it was any chance the weather was going to be bad, they absolutely would not go. You know, they were not stupid, right? <laughs> they were not going out if it was until they had good conditions. So I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of caution and a lot of uh, knowledge and that those two things were what people had to protect themselves against the dangers of the sea because the sea is a dangerous place for sure even for people who live on it mm -hmm. the, um, yeah the, so what what are some what are some of the myths and stuff that you, you uh you particularly enjoy that you think the listeners would like to hear about that give like a sense of what they could learn in the book well, in terms of the mythology, um, one of the things that really interested me was uh, the way that there are some, there are these, you know, there are these stories about ancestral beings or maybe even deities or something who travel from place to place. And often those stories have, they are like lists. They're, they're almost like maps. They're like lists of islands in the order in which they come if you travel from one side of the archipelago to the other, you know? So there, there's a way in which stories are a, a, a kind of uh, inform, they're, they're information. But then there's also, um, there are also kind of stories that I thought that really interested me, sort of mythic or legendary stories where there was lots of other kinds of information like, um, like the kinds of people you might want with you in a canoe, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, reliable people <laughs> or strong people or whatever, or the kinds of foods that you ought to take with you in the canoe or um, the kinds of protocols you ought to follow if you're going to build a canoe. Like there was a lot of kind of just interesting information. It, it, it's sort of scattered throughout the, the, the myths, but I, and the legends, but I liked it a lot because it felt like I was, again, kind of getting a sense of what people thought and what they really, what they believed and what they needed to know in order to be able to accomplish this. Because we can look at this, you know, we can look at this, like Europeans get out into the Pacific Ocean and they find all these people on these islands and they go, whoa, where did these people come from and how did they get here? And we can just sort of say, wow, you know, that's amazing. They did that. But how, how did they do it? And exactly what did they know? And, and what did they think about it? That's what's kind of hard to sort of peer back into the mists of time and see that. Uh, that's, uh, and that's why I think these stories sometimes give you, that was what I was looking for in, this, in the mythology. I was looking for sort of a sense of like, what, what did it feel like? What was it like? What did people know? What did they believe? You know, stuff like that. So, and then there's also sort of, cosmic origin stuff that I found really fascinating, but that's kind of another subject. Mm -hmm. um, I know, I think most people, uh, if they're not familiar with the Hawaii trip um, and the 2014 thing might know of Moana. I don't know. Right. Um, yeah. It, is that, is that accurate? And then I think I'm, I'm going to like use that as an, an example of a question, but is that like a, does it capture the culture? Well, I, I think Moana has a lot of, uh, you know, has, they had a lot of, consultants on that they did ask a lot they they the thing about Moana that a lot of people didn't really like and the part that I thought where they kind of I don't know I didn't feel quite right to me was that the character of Maui is this uh who's this deity well semi-god demigod uh, hero type figure he's sort of a comic character in the movie and I think a lot of people felt that there was this sort of buffoonery associated with him in the movie that wasn't really true to the to the way he is as a legendary figure. But it, I mean, it's not, not a huge deal one way or the other. I mean, also the fact, the idea of a, a girl being, you know, the one who gets to go off and do that, that's kind of a modern twist on it because that probably wouldn't, I mean, there are some legends of women navigators in Hawaii, particularly Pele, the goddess is a, is a um, definitely travels um, and her sister. So, so there are women, but yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, cultural accuracy, I, you know, while recognizing that it's a Disney movie, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> allowing for the fact that it's a Disney movie. They're still, they did their homework. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a thing like the Polynesians had when they traveled, they, they, were, they had these little small suite of animals that they had with them. They had a pig, they had a dog, they had a chicken and a rat. And, and you know, they, in the Disney movie, they captured a little bit of, 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 the, of the animals, the set cluster, which I thought was kind of cute because that was like an anthropological detail that nobody else would have really known. So anyway. So um, now that I, I think it, I don't think I, I'm, I don't think they got into the, the finding mythology in that movie other than that like people would go from island to island which isn't really a mythology like how they came to be but what is the the polynesian founding myth or myths uh well there uh they vary uh somewhat there is an origin story in eastern polynesia which is kind of begins with a concept of a thing called tipu which is the, the sort of um original darkness and out of it springs these sort of creative forces, sort of a male force, creative force called Tetumu or Kumu sometimes. And Papate uh, Papa, which is a feminine sort of essence or being, or I don't know whether they're really beings. Sometimes they're beings. And they, between them, kind of create the world, and then the world kind of continues to keep getting created. I mean, it, it's uh, usually kind of in the form of a genealogy. So everything, if you start tracing your ancestry back, eventually you would trace your ancestry back to um, uh, Tirangi or, or Titumu and Te Papa. So depending on which particular culture you're in. So in the West, it's a little different. Um, I mean, there, there's sort of variations on these themes of, of kind of the world being created by um these characters are it's hard to know exactly what they are um but it's not it's not it, i mean it's it's not in some ways that different from some of the origin stories in in the kind of european um mythology where there's a there's a chaos or a, or a nothingness or a a, some, a darkness in the beginning i mean this is where the greek the greek stories are like this and then out of that spring some uh, creative beings who then bring the world into existence. Sort of similar in some ways. Mm -hmm. the, I, I was recently reading that the, in Egypt, they found like a, a, a piece of pottery or something. And that for the longest time that uh, one of their founding myths is that they uh, came from like a, like a woman, like everyone came from a woman or something like that. I mean, everyone does kind of come from a woman. So I mean, that that's on point, but the, what they found in this pot is that it, it kind of suggests that the first Pharaoh was a woman. And like, which is, which is interesting that like the, she got like deified to the point where um, she like was the creator of everything. And so, which, which makes you wonder like, and, and these cultures where that are really ancient and orally told, like, I wonder if some of the people that they talk about that are now like the deities were originally like just people like set out and um, like did some really interesting stuff. And, like, so their names just kept getting recycled, not recycled, but like used a lot. And so like with each telling, like just got a little bigger and a little bigger. And um, which is just me just trying to figure out like where things come from. But <laughs> well, I think, th I mean, there's definitely, you know, one of the things in the 19th century, when, when people were starting coll collecting these, these stories, they were always looking for that. They were looking for who is the actual person that these things refer to. And I think that's probably lost, you know, to the, I mean, I, I don't know there's any way to know that, but there are definitely names that recur. There are place names that recur. The name of Hawaii, for example, the island of the, the island cluster of Hawaii and the big island is a very old name in Polynesia. And the name in most places is called Hawaiiki or Hawaiiki or Avaiiki and or Savai'i. There are a bunch of them, and there's one in Samoa, there's one in the Cook Islands, there's, there used to be one in the Society Islands. So this is a name that Polynesians carried with them as they went. Um, and it is also in the mythology, it's an ancestral homeland. It's the name of the ancestral homeland, at least for Eastern Polynesians, not for Samoans and Tongans. They have a different name, but for Eastern Polynesians, it, it is. And so that's obviously just something that people, I mean, that's, I think it's obvious that people just took you know, they kept a memory of this place and they carried it with them and they, they transplanted that name. And then they, you know, that was a way of thinking back to their, where they had come from. So that's kind of cool. Hmm. So if there, if you could, I don't know if you had like a magic machine or something, I don't know how you do this. You, you can like create the universe where this allows you to happen. But if you could look at any point in Polynesian history in particular and see how it played out in actuality, 
are there points that you would want to see or would it just be able to like hear the stories straight from someone and enjoy it in that way? Like, would you want to, yeah. yeah, I I would love to know what happened in some places. I would love to know what, you know, I would love to know, I mean, the stuff that's hard to, to know, I'd love to know why people left the places they left. I'd love to see some people have seen some people setting out. I'd love to have seen what it was like when people first, I mean, the Marquesas, for example. So the Marquesas are an island group northeast of Tahiti. They are um, kind of difficult to, you know, as high islands go, so high islands are the volcanic ones. So Tahiti or the Hawaiian islands, those are all high islands. And a lot of them have like a coral reef around them. They have a lagoon. They have some, they have what's called a coastal plain, some flat land around the margin where you live. And that all makes a pretty habitable environment. But the Marquesas are sort of rugged. They don't have much in the way of a coastal plain. They don't really have much at all in the way of coral reef. So they're, they're, I think they must have been harder to inhabit, you know, because they don't provide quite the same. A reef, for example, in lagoon is a good food. It's a source of food. Um, and flat land around the coast makes it easier to kind of communicate from one with one area to the next. So the Marquesas are kind of tough. And, and I always wondered what it was like for the people who sort of, you know, discovered the Marquesas the first time. And did they, did they, they would have, they must have been hugely relieved to come across these, these fabulous, huge islands, but also they're not the easiest islands to inhabit in some ways. They also, in, occupy an area where if you go past them, there is nothing, you know, they are, they are isolated for, for facing, you know, from the, on the North and Eastern sides, there's nothing beyond them. So they're kind of at the far end of, of, of I think a voyaging path. I don't know. I don't know. We don't really know. I'm just guessing. <laughs> the, um, so in, um, in Mexico city, before they drained it, there were, I think it was called Tenochtitlan. I'm not good with names. But they they built like there was like a like a part of it was on an island and a part of it was just built on water like a floating city. Did the Polynesians ever try that? Like maybe in the Marquesas where they used the island as like the anchor and then like built like floating things off of it? No, no, I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think so. I mean, the islands are are uh, they're not trivial. I mean, they're big and they're and they're uh, they have deep valleys and the valleys are very habitable. But it's just that they the coast is fairly hard. Uh, there are some bays. There are a few bays and some um, a little few protected areas. So it's not impossible by any stretch. It's just that it's uh, just I think more. I don't know. There's something about the Marquesas. They're one of my favorite island groups. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they also have like the wide ocean where I think Mexico City had like like a bowl around it that protect it from really harsh um, en- environment. So like, yeah, could, well, like right. cities not having them wrecked all the time. Right. Right. I mean, the ocean, the, the, the ocean crashes on the coast, you know, it's like, it's like an atoll. If you're on an atoll, um, which is just a coral ring, you know, it's got nothing, it's got a lagoon in the center. It's got usually not always, but usually, and then it's a coral ring sometimes with passes between, you know, allowing the water to go in and out of the lagoon, but on the ocean, on the open ocean side, especially on the side that the wind is dominantly, predominantly coming from, the ocean is, is, is hammering that side of the island. You know, it's the waves are strong and big and that's a dangerous place because the reef, you know, there's just this coral reef and then this ocean crashing on it. So you would never be able to, I mean, protection from the, from the ocean is important um, because it's, it's, it's relentless, you know? <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm. I'm now. I'm thinking about what my life would be like if I was born in Polynesia. Oral <laughs> 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 tradition, especially because we're like on a podcast and like, uh, um, like you know, in a lot of ways we're telling these stories, you know, orally instead of just uh, reading about them. Um, uh-huh. which was like one of the earlier things you said. I'm sorry. I got. I got lost in, <laughs> in the in that thought. Um, but if uh, if you if you were to, I guess I don't know, turn that into a question. Is there Maybe this is just the Marquesas, but if you could live in one of them, one of the island groups that uh, during the times where like the Polynesians were at the height of their power and like not maybe the Europeans were around, um, do you have like an island group? I, I'm I'm guessing Marquesas based on what you just said, but like if you could live and like actually be like from that culture, is there one like area that you would pick? Well, um, 
Uh, no, I don't really know. I mean, I think that uh, I think the Society Islands are really wonderful, and I think Hawaiian Islands are really wonderful. Um, I think the Marquesans, in some ways, are harder. Uh, I don't know. I've never. You know, it's funny. You should ask that question because, to be honest, I have never actually imagined myself being a, you know, being Polynesian or being in this environment. I mean, I one of the things is that I've. I've been writing about the Pacific and the history of the Pacific for a really long time, but I came at it originally from the point of view of somebody who came to the Pacific from someplace else. You know, I'm from Boston and I went to the Pacific when I was in my twenties, I went to Australia and I, I, I discovered the Pacific in a sense for myself at that time and then really fell in love with it and spent a lot of years going back and forth and spent a lot of years in Australia, a lot of time thinking about it and reading about it and so forth. But I always did it from the point of view of somebody who had arrived there as an outsider. So I've really never, I've never put myself in that position of thinking, um, of thinking about what it would have been. I mean, I try to think about what it would be like and everything, but I don't sort of, I don't kind of, um, I, I, I'm not sort of imagining myself as a Polynesian. Also, you know, my husband is Polynesian. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what um, I have thought about over the years is the sort of differences between us, the sort of what, to what extent those differences are cultural, to what extent those differences are matters of, of, of um, family, of upbringing, of all that kind of stuff. So I, I guess I've just always imagined that Polynesian history and Polynesian culture and all that was something else, you know, apart from me, but that I was really interested in, really fascinated by, and really sympathetic to. So I think that's really where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. I understand. The, I think the, there's a thing called like method acting. You could do like method writing where you like find a, find a group <laughs> and just like immerse yourself into, into them for like three, six months and then write about you know, it. It's, it's kind of that, that these days that's called cultural appropriation. <laughs> so, yeah. oh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know these things. Um, yeah. People people tend to get pretty prickly if you if you sort of presume to understand them um, without um, enough experience, and even with you know if you're just not part of the if you're not part of the group to begin with. But uh, I don't, don't know. Yeah, you know, don't most of the groups have like a you can come in and be a friend or like? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, I feel like a friend. I don't, I don't feel like a, I just don't feel, I just feel like a friend. That's what I feel like. A mm. friend is good. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have like an, uh, do the Polynesians not have like an assimilation mechanism to like take people who aren't of them and like incorporate them into the Polynesian ways? Yeah, no, they, you certainly would. I mean, if I, if my husband and I, for example, had lived in New Zealand and had been part of his community rather than coming back to the United States and becoming part of my community, um, I think I would have been absorbed into the community. Absolutely. Um, definitely. But, you know, a lot of, there's a certain amount because many Polynesian groups, particularly in New Zealand and Hawaii, have been subject to, um, you know, pretty systemic sort of colonization over 100, 200 years, 200, I don't know, whatever, a while. Um, and that wasn't always so good for them. You know, they, they were disenfranchised in some many ways. They, they lost a lot. They lost a lot of their land. They, in many cases, I mean, my husband's family, for example, uh, his parents would have been punished for speaking Maori when they were growing up in school, if they had spoken Maori in school, they spoke it at home, but they didn't speak it in public or in school because they were not supposed to. I mean, there was a lot of discrimination um, and it was very hard for both Hawaiians and, and Maori people to, um, so, 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 so the idea that, you know, they, they have some residual resentment and I don't blame them. Um, so their goal is not so much to take me and go, oh yeah, come and be one of us. Their goal is like, let's salvage what we can of our language, our culture. And in the meet, and by the way, how about giving us some of our land back? <laughs> you yeah. know? That's where they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I think they're, they're right. You know, um, I imagine if I was them, that's what I'd want to do too. Like do as much as I can to dig and like uh, preserve it so that it can never be lost again. Right. Um, I mean, there's right. the, I think, so- I think it was Socrates and Plato where Socrates said, like, you shouldn't write things down because it's bad for your brain. 
And the only reason we know about what he was saying is because Plato, one of his disciples, wrote down what he said. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, I, I, I would love to just be, I, I would love to go to an area and like hear like oral stories being told. And um, especially if, if they're meant to be oral stories, because then I think that's different than like, you know, reading about them. Like, like a Shakespearean play, like if you read it, it just doesn't feel right. But if you see it, it does feel right. Like there's like a qualitative difference. And so I, I always feel like when, yeah, when you hear these stories of like, the foundation myths or um, where people come from and like, you know, uh, they have things for knowing how to pack a boat or like what to, to bring in the boat or like build the ships and stuff. And then like here it being told is like an entirely different thing. Like I think yeah. they, they recently discovered that I think it was, is it, I think it's Iliad. It's like one of the Homer stories where it was, it was a, a story that was orally told that was later transcribed into, into writing and they realized it was something that you tell orally because it had um, type of refrains in it that you'd only add if you were telling it out loud. And so right. like, there's a lot of stuff that like even today that you, the West has been using that um, were originally orally told, but like have oh. been like changed and that the we didn't Bible. know about it. The Bible would be in that category. <laughs> Big chunks of the Bible uh, are part of an oral tradition. Homer, all of Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey is part of an oral tradition. Uh, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. I mean, there are a bunch of things that that uh, that are that come out of things that are very old that come out of uh, traditions before they were written down and have been handed down. And then they, you know, when they get written down, they change. Uh, but yeah, yeah it's all our roots are in that kind of, you know, that kind of storytelling. I mean, writing is only five or 6,000 years old. So uh, everybody uh, was work, was living in a society like this where all the knowledge was handed down from person to person or from, 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 you know, from priest to priest or sage to sage and, and, uh, and, and things, the stories were changing as they went along and so forth. I mean, that's the way it was for, all of human history basically until just sort of almost yesterday. It doesn't feel like yesterday to us because we're so entrenched in it, but mm -hmm. so, yeah. Which is probably why we still care, like why storytellers are so important to like our way of life today. Like almost like every, almost every world leader, I'm a history fan. So like, I'm thinking more um, like I've been reading a number of books. Like I just finished a book on Lincoln. And um, one of the things that people liked about Lincoln is that like he would like in his free time, he'd, he'd get up on like a stump, like, uh, a literal like tree stump. And he would tell stories to his friends and he'd just make them up and like have everyone enjoy themselves. It's so like storytelling, I think like, and, and a point that you're, you're saying is like, it's very much innate in who we are. And like writing is like this thing yet um, that's new, but that we're like, I don't know, it's, it's a very valuable thing, but um, just the ability to like communicate in a, in a storytelling way is something I think that comes natural to a lot of us, which is probably maybe why people gossip a lot. Like they just want to be a part of a story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I just making sense of that. I um, but if um are well if if um when you when you do go about like writing in the, in the polynesian culture how do you go about researching it if if like like immersing yourself and assimilating it's not the right way to do it i didn't know that was cultural appropriation I, maybe i'm an idiot but like how do you, you, know, how do you it's, i mean it's just that I, I, so here's what i'm doing what i'm doing is is uh <clears throat> So, so the, the idea here is is part is two things. I I look at this story, this story of Polynesian history. It's actually kind of prehistory. It's the sort of undocumented part of Polynesian history up until, up until you know, going back a thousand, two thousand years, like that. And I'm saying, wow, that's an amazing story. Let's see, how would we tell that story? Mm -hmm. And then what I do is I think, okay, what nobody really knows that story exactly. So what sources, what avenues do we have? And, you know, archeology, span for example, is a way that we have of looking back into the past to see what happened. Or again, those oral traditions that are written down at contact, those are interesting little path windows into what happened in the past. Not one of these avenues is sufficient by itself. So, my approach to the whole thing was to say, let's look at all of the ways that we have tried to understand this story over the past 300 plus years and take them one by one and see what they've taught us. And one of the things that was kind of interesting for me is that some of the conclusions that people came to um, were 
later disproven, you know, they were later overruled or overwritten. And that was kind of interesting because it's like the, le- the lesson there is, okay, you have all this evidence or whatever, but, and you think you know what's going on. And in 50 years, people are going to look back and go, that was wrong. You know? <laughs> um, that's, that's a very big part of how we understand things, that we understand things in some way, and then time passes and we come to understand that our previous understanding was flawed in some important way. So in a way, for me, that's a big piece of the story too, was just this process of coming to understand something. So you take a difficult problem or a difficult question, and you look at how people have answered it over time, and you see how the, the process itself is messy. Um, but also has all these moments of creativity in it. Like the guy who decides that, that, well, it's not one guy, but a couple of guys together who decide that they're going to do a, you know, back in the 19th, early 1970s, when computers were like the size of houses, they decide they're going to run a computer simulation to determine whether or not it's possible to drift to all these islands. And, and it took them ages and ages and ages to do this because they didn't, you couldn't, you couldn't, you had to use like, magnetic tape and they had to use punch cards and I mean really primitive computer technology to do this and huge amounts of time to do the data input. Um, I mean you'd probably do it on your phone now right but but it was like a really creative way of thinking about the problem so that's again what I'm looking at is and I'm not really just looking at like what do Polynesians think or what happened to them or whatever, but how has these have these questions about prehistory? And it could have been in a way, it could have been anybody's prehistory because the question is how does, how do these questions get answered over time and what craziness do people come up with when they, you know, along the way? So that's, that's, that's where it's really not a question for me. The cultural appropriation thing isn't really, I stay away from it because it's not even relevant to what I'm doing in some ways. Okay. That makes sense. The, um, the, I think there was a, a recent, for the longest time, I was—I heard this on the Joe Rogan podcast, and I dig into it a little bit because you never know what's true on that guy's podcast. But uh, I mean, he has like people on there that think aliens have like abducted them, which I don't know is true, but uh, maybe not something I believe. But anyway, so the but the one person I was talking about, and he was actually a uh, he, he had a, a degree in this, and uh, I was reading into it, and I think there's some evidence to support it as well. But the that like for the longest time, we thought that people came to America, and they've only been to in the Americas for like ten thousand years. But there's evidence. It supports that they've been around for like a hundred, like over a hundred thousand years, which is really great. Like that's a huge difference in time scale. Mm. But I'm, I'm curious, do you have any theories? Like you've you've looked at a lot of the evidence or and what you've uh, when you when you did your research. Do you have any theories that you think that are um, counter to what is currently being told that you didn't include in the book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I don't myself sort of originate theories about this, but what I do is review what I think everybody else has said and sort of come to uh, what I think is a reasonable assessment of the value of all that stuff. Like I think, for example, in that case, I think a hundred thousand years is too old. I wouldn't, based on what I understand of archeology span and human history, I do not think that there's anybody in the Americas a hundred thousand years ago, but you know, you'd have to look into it. Right. Mm-hmm. So in the Polynesian context, there are a couple of things you have to look into. One is the claim that Polynesians came from South America. That was a very popular claim, partly because of Torhardal and his Contiki expedition in the mid-20th century. So you really have to look into that and say, well, okay, what on balance, what's the evidence? And you know, on balance, the evidence is that that's wrong. Um, one simple piece of, two pieces of evidence that, that, that contradict that. One is that the languages, if you, if, you, if you look at the languages that people speak in Polynesia, there are strong connections between those languages and the languages that are spoken in various parts through Melanesia, through the Western Pacific, into, into Indonesia, up through the Philippines, all the way up to Taiwan and the, Indo- the indigenous languages of, of what's, what are known as Formosan. So there are language connections all the way along to the, you know, going basically westward, connecting them to, 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 to Asia you know, the Western side of the Pacific. And that is pretty irrefutable, you know? And also there's things like the fact that, you know, the Polynesian animals and plants that they carried with them are all originate in Asia with the exception of one, which is the sweet potato, which is a complicating factor because it comes from South America. And so you have to figure that out. But so that's, you know, you're like, it's exactly what you say. You're sort of looking at the evidence and you're saying, hmm, which of these things seems more plausible? But I think, it's, it's not just my opinion. I mean, it's pretty much everybody's opinion that the South American theory is not, is not basically the, the, the model. Um, but it, it, it has been persuasive to people for, for decades. So, mm-hmm. 
Uh, that would be one for sure. How did they get the sweet potato? Do we do we have theories on that? I don't. We do not. We do not know the answer to that. I mean, there are there are there's there is some new evidence that possibly the sweet potato was actually in Polynesia before the Polynesians got there. So that's like a new piece of data that is. It was so new that I couldn't really include it um, because it hadn't really been evaluated properly in the field. So I don't really know yet. But one the theory that the kind of dominant theory is that Polynesian voyagers at some point got to South America picked it up and brought it back into Polynesia, um, which is perfectly plausible. I mean, they managed to cross the entire Pacific. I don't see why they wouldn't have gotten those last couple of thousand miles. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they're like the most amazing voyagers ever. And they have gone every, they do go everywhere. They, I mean, they managed to find, I mean, the Hawaiian Islands, if you take a look at the map and you look at the Hawaiian Islands and figure out what's around them, which is absolutely nothing, um, and you think about searching the ocean and finding them, whoa. That's amazing. So we don't exactly know how that happened. Mm -hmm. I know, uh, like a weird, like interesting factoid that I, I heard a really long time ago. I think it was in a movie about Pearl Harbor with like um, Matt Damon. But the they talked about how you could lose like the entire continent of China in the Pacific Ocean, and you wouldn't know about it. Like that's how big it is, and it is really big. I, like it's just like it's a whenever I look I, I I'm actually I I love Boston I go there as often as I can now I'm gonna be there next month but when I look at an ocean I like it's hard to imagine like how big it is and so like I think it's hard to sometimes for people who like look at their phones and basically live in like little tiny um, bubbles of like the the larger world we don't even get to see the stars anymore like you don't really get to feel small but like I it's hard to imagine like how big big is even in terms of like our small planet. And like, but like those people did like in incredible things. Well, the, the 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 Pacific at its widest point is actually it's more than half the circumference of the globe. I mean, marginally, and it isn't mostly more than half of the world. But you can't. It's really hard to represent the Pacific if you show it on a globe, and you're just looking face on. You kind of can't see both sides of it, you know, at the same time because it, it's it's wrapping around. I mean, it's it's relative to other things on the planet it is huge yeah <laughs> and that was christina thompson author of sea people the puzzle of polynesia and come on shore we will kill and eat you all check her out at christinathompson.net or google either of those books or check the show notes i have links to all this stuff other than that thanks for coming out and here's my outro don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at LowellWasHere, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.